Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Andrea Goulet on the show. She's the CEO and co-founder of Corky Bytes, a company focused on adding value to software through modernization and maintenance. Andrea has a really interesting path into tech and coding, and today we get into the founding story behind her company, as well as the role that empathy has in tech, and in particular within the realm of coding and when it comes to tech debt. As product people, I know tech tech can be one of those things that jumps up and can feel like it derails your plans when you least expect it, but it definitely doesn't have to be that way. Andrea shares a better way to think about paying that debt down and gives a bunch of tips on how to operate better as a team. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Welcome to the show, Andrea. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm really excited because our main topic is going to be about empathy today. But before we Mm -hmm. get into that, I want to start with your story and how you became quote unquote technical, because I think you come, you have such an interesting background and a really cool career story. Yeah. I'm going to write this screenplay one day because yeah, it's (laughs) like a movie. Yeah. So my background is, um, so my parents actually ran a, a graphics design company out of my house when I was, this was in the late 80s. And so I was like, oh, everybody works from home, duh. (laughs) And um, (laughs) I had a a good friend of mine, Scott, who we went to school together, and he was president of the computer club. And because my parents were, you know, kind of on the leading edge of, you know, computer stuff, I would talk to him regularly about computer things. But it was interesting because we kind of segmented socially. Like, I never decided to take computer science because it was an elective. And then you know, there was just kind of all these little signals that that's not something for me. So I ended up graduating. I went to school, got my degree in business and really loved focusing on business communications. And so I went into sales and then became a copywriter. And I loved copywriting, which is basically like taking big ideas and distilling them down into their essence. And I just found this so fascinating. I really enjoyed it. I was kind of on my trajectory. I was working at a large Fortune 100 company as a copywriter and then went to my 10-year high school reunion. And Scott came up to me and said, hey, I've started a software business and I want you to be my CEO. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) uh, Do you realize? (laughs) Yeah. I was like, "Um, do I have to like know how to code if I'm going to be the CEO of a software company? Mm -hmm. And um he said, no, I think you're going to do great because I had actually been freelancing for a very long time and had had a blog where I, you know, kept track of all of my ideas and just here's how I think of business communications and here's how I think of marketing and copywriting. He said, I've read your blog and anytime I have a marketing question, your blog comes up on the first page of Google. So I know you're an authority on this. I was like, oh, I didn't know that, but that's great. And then he goes, the other thing is that the way that you think about copywriting and marketing is more in line with programming principles than you think. Because you're talking about things like don't repeat yourself. You're talking about fields and variables. You're using databases. You're using Boolean logic to separate all of these things. And I've read what you're doing. And even though you're not calling it programming, you're doing a lot more of it than you think. So he had a lot of confidence in me. We explored it. You know, it's like, well, worst case, it's a side gig and I'm kind of interested in learning how to code. And then we kind of grew it. So it started completely bootstrapped. And was the idea you started with the same one that you're working on now? Or has, did you not. pivot? We did pivot. Yeah. So our original idea was this was in 2009. 
Mm-hmm. And so it was the very bottom of the financial crisis yeah. is when I decided <laughs> yeah. to quit my very cushy corporate job that I had just survived a round of layoffs and yep. decided to go into <laughs> this business. A very relevant conversation right now. Yeah. Well, my my thinking at the time was that, you know, the best time to start a business is at the bottom of a recession because there's nowhere to go but up. So, you know, I'm, a, I'm <laughs> an eternal that. optimist. What can I say? <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. So the the original idea was we were going, the app stores had just started coming out. And so the original idea was we live in um, Richmond, Virginia, which is a very like creative town. There's the mm-hmm. brand center here, which is like, there's just a lot of designers. And so we said, oh, well, there's all these designers who are going to want to put apps in the app store. Scott will do the technology. We were thinking of apps as kind of like a three-legged stool. You know, you need the technology, the code, you need the content, and then you need the design. So we Mm -hmm. said, well, we'll partner with independent designers and help them put apps in the app store. And we found a lot of people who wanted us to work for free or work for equity. It was hard to pay the bills (laughs) and Mm -hmm. just couldn't figure out quite how to make that model fit. So we did take a couple of years where both of us took jobs. Oh, I should say this too. This is important. Three years after starting the business together, Scott and I also got married. So <laughs> just adding another layer of complexity. I know, right? <laughs> I know. Yeah, we were like, we better make this work. So yeah, <laughs> that was actually interesting, though, because then we went proactively to couples counseling before we needed it because we were like, we're putting a lot in this relationship. And if this doesn't go well, there's a lot mm-hmm. at stake. And that ended up being great for, I actually have a whole keynote that I give about the marriage of communication and code and just how Mm -hmm. important it is for people in marketing and people in engineering to be able to understand each other. Yeah, absolutely. I imagine a lot of founders would probably benefit from, from that type of relationship coaching. Yes, absolutely. Whenever people tell us that they're starting a business, we tell them to go get couples counseling. Like it was the best thing because it teaches you the frameworks of how to communicate and how to navigate conflict. Right. I think that's relevant in any relationship, but especially in a long term one where there's a lot at stake, like a marriage or a business partnership. Yep. But yeah, it ended up being really interesting because the, you know, we took a couple years off and then we were like, oh my gosh, I miss running my own business. I really do. Let's figure out how to make this work. And so Scott said, we were watching this old house one day, and he said, I want to do that. I said, okay, you want to quit software and start flipping houses? Let me understand this. He goes, no, 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 no. I want to take the same level of attention and care and craft that, you know, Norm and all of these people on this old house do with their construction projects to code. Like the reason that the first business didn't work is because I think I don't like making things. I think I like fixing things that already exist. And then the marketing person in me was like, ding, 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 ding. This is a winner because Mm -hmm. I had always heard if you want to create a successful business, you need to do something that everybody needs and nobody else wants to do. And so I was like, you're sitting here telling me that you love legacy code and like (laughs) you would just fix bugs all day. (laughs) I think there's a lot of legacy code out there and I think that we can make this work. So yeah, so that was kind of the dawning of that. Yeah, so now Corgi Bytes, our tagline is old code, new tricks. And we specialize and we call it software remodeling. So there's a lot of apps out there that just, just like you need to change the oil in your car. There's maintenance and modernization projects. And that's what we specialize in. And yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And then once we got into that area, My big thing was coming from the marketing world, 
my biggest thing was if we are going to create a software company, it will be centered around empathy. That will be the core of everything we do. And if we don't do that, then I can't build this. But if we can do that, then I'm in. Okay. So tell me about where, like, why empathy and where did that come from? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. So from, you know, I think you learn a lot about this in a marketing, like my specialization at business school was in marketing. And like you just learn, you have to get in the shoes of customers. Like you have to understand other people. Like I took whole classes in market segmentation and qualitative research and all of the stuff that was a very kind of technical way of understanding people. And I could see that like that was part of the reason that we didn't necessarily do so great on our first version 1.0 of Corybytes. And in 2012, when I was still kind of consulting at another agency, I had stumbled on Brene Brown's work Mm -hmm. and just like it was life changing. I could do a whole thing about that. But her linking perfectionism and shame and empathy, my tagline for myself all through my career has been I'm not type A. I'm type A plus, like I'm better than type A. I'm the most perfectionist person you will ever see. And when I had my first child in 2012, that attitude led to a severe mental breakdown where I was hospitalized, like could not function because you just can't. And so then understanding that shame, like perfectionism is basically shame all dressed up and pretty was such a profound insight. And then the way that you get around shame is empathy. Yeah. So I ended up in the hospital really burnt out and learned that empathy and shame are deeply related. So Dr. Brown in her book says, you know, if you see shame, the antidote is empathy. Mm -hmm. And I had been in software enough that I had recognized that there was an immense amount of shame. Like just go to Stack Overflow and try to post something there as somebody who's learning how to code. And I think that was the thing was that I had felt so blocked and so like I don't belong in the software industry because I just didn't see a place for me. And it was beyond the cultural place. It was an implicit, you don't know what you're doing. Why are you even here? So because of that, I started calling myself non-technical. Well, there were some other things. I had taken that... um, idea from Brene Brown. And then I had really rigorously applied it in my copywriting work and saw huge benefits. Like the clients, I was working on some customer service projects and developed this framework of empathy where I called it using your ear. So if you're writing a customer service email, you first empathize, acknowledge, and then rectify. And that was kind of the framework. And like on the projects that I did that for where I was writing all these templates, like the customer service satisfaction numbers skyrocketed. So it was like, I I had enough evidence, I knew about it. And so I was like, this has to be a thing. And when we went to consultants to kind of describe what we were doing, I had one person who said, you want to talk about empathy in the software industry? No one's going to take you seriously. I've now been in business long enough where I know that if I have somebody who has that visceral of a reaction, I'm actually probably onto something pretty good. Definitely. (laughs) Like that's happened many times over my career now. It's also interesting just because 
hearing this, you talk about empathy in terms of uh, the more technical side of things. You couldn't do as a product manager or product person myself, like I couldn't do my job if I couldn't empathize with users right. and people. So it's so Absolutely. interesting to see like, even though like the people you're talking to are working and sitting next to people whose main job it is to empathize with users, to have them say, yeah. oh, well, that's not that's not for us. Well, you know, it was interesting because when like Scott was in, right, Mm -hmm. he kind of couldn't be in because I'm the majority shareholder of the company. So and that was the deal (laughs) was like what I what I say goes, which is nice. Yeah. But he we uncovered and I think a lot of this was because we were married. We like had an incentive to dive into some of these things really deeply. And what we discovered was that he felt I'm, quote, not good with people for the same reasons that I felt like I was, quote, not good with code, because society had basically pigeonholed him and sent him all of these signals from the media that we consumed to the classes that he took, that he was not allowed to talk to other people. So an example is that at his school, when he got his degree in computer science, he was not allowed to collaborate at all on any project. And if it was, it was an honor code violation and he would be kicked out. That's wild. Yeah. So it's like he was trained to think this way. It's not that you're not good with people. It's that you're trained to do this. So I was like, just like you saw that belief in me 10 you know, years ago where you said that I could code because you you saw that I was doing it. I see that you have this deep capacity for kindness and you consider other people's opinions. And the fact that you think that you don't have empathy is bizarre to me because I see it. And so what underpins all of this is shame. Right. And so then looking at that, I just became more and more convinced that teaching engineers the technical and tactical side of empathy was where I wanted to personally spend my career. Like, this is the mission that I will have for, I think, the rest of my career. Yeah. That's amazing. And so then I think I can see where you're going with this. But, like, help me understand how that kind of connects with the technical debt side of things. Yeah. So I think one of the things that's been interesting is that the reason that I've been able to make a connection with back-end developers is because now I do know how to code, right? I'm self-taught. I'm definitely not the best person in the world. But I have enough context and understanding to speak that language. And I think that's been the challenge is because a lot of the people who are on the teaching people about empathy side, they don't understand the use cases. They don't understand like where specifically would you do this in the context of building software. And so that's been kind of the spin that I've been able to put on it and say, okay, writing a really solid commit message that explains your rationale for why you made a decision is practicing empathy. Because it's being kind and thinking about your future self or the people who are going to read this code after you and you're saving them time. And that in and of itself is an act of empathy. And so there's a ton of other places, but getting really discreet in terms of the day-to-day work and then demonstrating how if you make this decision you are demonstrating empathy. If you make that decision, then you're making your work harder. And so in the realm of technical debt, technical debt was uh, coined by Ward Cunningham. 
He was working on a financial system in the 90s and basically was trying to describe that if we make choices that are kind of like hacked together, but we know that they're not like the best choice, that's like creating interest, like interest on a credit card. And the problem isn't making those choices. The problem is not paying them down. It's not recognizing later. And so that's the practice of paying down technical debt is paying off that interest. And a lot of the activities that you have to do in order to pay down technical debt are things where you have to consider other people. So for example, refactoring your code, which refactoring is modifying the code without modifying its behavior. And so that means making the code easier for a human to read, right? Making it easier to parse, breaking out some of the complexity that, you know, you may have originally done, updating variable names, turning, you know, magic numbers into constants. There are so many different things that you can do that are on a very deep technical level. But the reason why you are doing it is not necessarily to make the code fast, compile differently, because everything always just compiles down to ones and zeros. But it's for the human side. It's to make the code more pleasurable to work with. It's to be able to collaborate with other people on your team. It's to leave a good legacy behind. And I think this is the other thing, too, is this idea of legacy code as being something that's bad or people don't want to work on. To me, that was really interesting as a copywriter coming in because my syntactic understanding of legacy was, wait, this is something of value that I want to pass down. Let me understand how this is a bad thing. Oh, interesting. And so we've taken that approach that it's like, it's something valuable that's worth passing down. And those are the types of apps that we work on. And, you know, just like a house, like you modernize it because it's got value, right? Right. There's software out there that runs businesses and yeah, they need to be modernized and nothing is going to ever be perfect, right? We have clients all the time. We do audits and people are like, oh, I'm so nervous. And it's like, no, like even if you have a really messy system, you have a successful mess. That's what Scott likes to say to a lot of our kind of startup clients Yeah, where it got you to where you needed to go. Awesome. And now you get to invest in it and now you get to make it, take it to the next level and make it even stronger and healthier. But I think too often that shame is just so prevalent in the legacy code world because it's, I don't want to work on that or who wrote that crap. I mean, even down to our tooling, if if I want to run a command that says, what's the list of, you know, kind of the changes that have been made and who's done it, the command for that is git blame. Like, this <laughs> yeah. is so baked in that, <laughs> yeah. that it's like, you, once you once your eyes are open, it's like, oh my gosh, I can't unsee it. And so then all of these small acts, like for me, I've aliased it. So now it's Git history. It's it's more yep. neutral. Some people I know have aliased it to Git praise. But it's like all these teeny little cognitive primings is actually what creates the legacy code. But if we use the cognitive priming of empathy, how can I be most useful to somebody who's coming after me or to my future self? Then you just naturally choose the behaviors, at least this is what I've observed, is that your team starts to kind of naturally choose the behaviors that will pay down technical debt. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting. While you're you're describing, I'm thinking about how there's a similar thing that happens on the product side. We just don't have the same type of language for it because we're not 
going back and actually having to to do anything differently. But there's something where a lot of people, if you're not part of the founding team of a startup or the first people to launch a certain thing, you're pretty much always working on something that someone else has already worked on. And there is definitely an aspect of like looking at a at a feature or a product and saying, why would you have done this? This doesn't make any sense. This yeah. UI is terrible. Like, why would you ever have designed it this way? And yeah. I think a lot about that a lot now that I've been at Drift for a couple of years where I've worked on a lot of the things and now a new wave of PMs are coming in. And it's always like, there was a reason why we made those choices and maybe right. the, the fundamental facts have changed, which means we can make it better now. But you're right. It's kind of like, maybe have a little bit of, of, like you're saying, empathy, understand why we made those choices, and then you can make them even better. That's, I think, the key, right? Where you are looking at the constraints of the decision that was made at the time. And if those are documented, awesome, right? That's, that's like an extra thing. And this is why I'm like such a big proponent of documenting your rationale, which that came from me being a copywriter because my job was to write like a four-word tagline. but the big piece of the work there was writing pages of why I thought that would work. And so understanding the rationale is is really important. And that gives people context as to why that decision was made. And I see that that easily gets left out of a lot of different discussions where it's just who did this, who wrote this crap. Right. But if we can focus on the people and like Norman Kurth, he was an agile early day person. He wrote a book and he's most famous for developing the retrospective. And he has what's called a prime directive in his book, which I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But the retrospective prime directive basically says no matter what happened, everyone did their best given the resources they had at the time and the knowledge they had at the time. And so it's one of these like, I might be dating myself, but Y2K, right? (laughs) Yep. It's like, why would you even put this into, you know, that's so stupid. And it's like, well, there were serious memory constraints. And I, I have a podcast too. I have a podcast called Legacy Code Rocks. I interview people who love working on Legacy Code. And I've interviewed several people who wrote the original version in the 70s, you know, 60s and 70s, where they had to make those choices. And their rationale was, y'all had oh, 40 amazing. years to modernize this. Why? Like, we didn't think that (laughs) it would be a problem. And we had these constraints. Yeah, good point. So it's very easy to slip into why did somebody else do that? But usually that's coming from a place of shame of yourself where either you're frustrated or you don't have patience or you're feeling rushed. I think that's the biggest thing that I see for founders is this like, you have to get features out the door as fast as freaking possible. And that stresses out the team. It doesn't incentivize you to actually do the work that pays down technical debt. You accrue technical debt faster when you have that kind of culture. Yeah. So all of this stuff is really kind of intertwined. The way I think about kind of technical debt, there's is kind of three buckets There's the code debt, right, which are like the variable names or the commit messages Mm -hmm. or all of these little things. There's the communication debt, which is how effectively are we communicating as a team, right? Are we all in alignment in terms of domain clarity? And so there's some great stuff in the worlds of domain-driven design and behavior-driven development where their goal is to create a ubiquitous language where everyone on the team, regardless of your role, has the same understanding of different terms. So you've got kind of that communication alignment of 
are your communications set up so that you can collaborate effectively? Are you staying out of shame? Are you, you know, using empathy? But then the other one is the organizational debt. And so this is kind of in two places. First is culture. Where do you have this culture of just push out, you know, something really fast and just go at breakneck speed and don't worry about the mess that you're leaving behind? There's a lot of risk in that. Like there's definitely a time for kind of move fast and break things. There's also a time for go slow and fix things. Yeah. Um, And so... You know, just recognizing that those are kind of two different things. And it's actually like tied into the product life cycle, I think. Because yeah. if you're in the very early stages of a project or an idea, you don't necessarily want to go slow. And that doesn't make a lot of sense because you want to get ideas fast and out into the world. But as soon as you start to get traction, like this is this is kind of where we see it, where as soon as you're ready to scale, as soon as you've gotten an idea where you're like, oh, this is awesome. Okay, I think we can we can scale this. We can grow it. That's when it makes a lot more sense to bring, we call them menders. So people like Scott who just love fixing mm-hmm. things, bring like menders onto the team. Yeah, he came up with that, like makers and menders, like in- yeah. extroverts and introverts. Yeah. <laughs> and the idea is like everyone has the same value, right? But it's just who likes to work on different things. And so that's a really good time to kind of bring in a mender and then start collaborating on kind of where where some of these things can actually make a difference. Yeah, it really reminds me of some of those phases that we've gone through at Drift. When I joined, we were definitely kind of still in the figuring out what our product market fit was, kind of figuring out what the idea of our product was. And we were shipping lots of net new features and products almost explicitly to try to understand what is the thing that we need to have and like what are the boundaries of it is how I think about it. And then when we kind of figured out like, okay, this is our core customer, this is our core business, this is really where we want to be, then we made a bunch of choices that said, okay, if that's the case, now we need to go back and fix the stuff that we kind of just like quick shipped out there. Yeah. It's hard. I think it's actually, knowing what I know now, I would say that the V1s were sort of way easier to do than the like, yeah, okay, crap, we have so many people using this feature and it's not going to scale and it's super annoying and we have to go in and fix it, but we can't just like build a V2 on top. You know, there's all that complexity in terms of like switching something out from underneath people and making it better. And I think that those projects are some of the hardest ones I've worked on. Well, it's so interesting too, because I think uh, it goes to the personality. Like, honestly, I'm more of a maker, right? I love kind of forging new ideas and love white space and like, just let's see what we can do. And, but I lead a team of menders. And what's been really interesting to me is that there's amount of joy. The people on my team, like Scott, because this was another thing where I was like, okay, I'm going to build a team of people who love modernizing legacy code have technical competence in at least three programming languages that are very deep, practice empathy, can manage their own projects. Like I just had this big long list. And again, that was another example where people laughed at me and they were like, you're never going to be able to find these people. But there's a whole team now of people and who aren't just, they don't just like doing this work. They genuinely love doing this work. And I think if you compare, like the reason it's hard is probably because it's not in your wheelhouse and it's not what brings you joy every day. Daniel Pink wrote the book Drive. He talks about motivation and you have to understand purpose, autonomy, and mastery. And if you feel like what you're doing doesn't serve a purpose, like if you want to build those new features and explore those new things, but then you're stuck 
kind of doing something that you don't like, you're not going to enjoy that. But for menders, it's a, I love taking something that somebody else has built and doing all of that work for you so that you can then innovate faster. And so what I see is like, just like you want to, there's kind of strengths finder, there's different strengths-based approaches to managing teams. You can apply that same kind of principle to, you know, managing kind of the development mix of a project. And so if you are moving towards, you know, needing to do more of these technical debt pay down initiatives, look for people who love doing that work. And then that way you can keep the folks who love doing features like on the feature side, and they're likely going to be more happy because now they're getting stuff faster, right? right? Because you're making, so a lot of it is just kind of aligning the people as well. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. Okay, so I have just one more question. And we talked a little bit before about how, and you kind of touched on a little bit, but like how to help people learn empathy. It's something that's really interesting. I think a lot about EQ and how for product managers, having a good EQ and being able to understand other people and empathize is super important. But yeah. it's something that I think a lot of people would say that you you don't teach or you can't teach. But it was interesting to me that you said that you could teach empathy. So yeah. tell me a little bit about how you're able to do that with your team. Yeah. So the the first step is to understand what empathy is. And I will say like huge plug for Indy Young. So Indy, I think, is she's in the UX. She's an independent UX researcher. And she wrote a book called Practical Empathy. And it is a user manual for technical people who want to understand empathy. And her book, I was on a plane like after I had kind of just discovered like, okay, I want to do empathy. How can I like teach people to do it? I read Indy's book because I had been to a conference and kind of floated this idea by somebody. And again, it was one of these like, you know, you'll never be able to teach engineers about empathy. I was like, okay, I'm onto something. <laughs> yeah. So, so I read Indy's book on a way to a conference and she starts by saying there's six different types of empathy. And I was like, whoa, anything that can be categorized into six different subtypes is pretty is a pretty meaty and technical subject. So I think the first step is just recognizing that you can learn it. Empathy is not something you're necessarily born with. Like some people are more sensitive to, you know, kind of feeling other people. But that is just one aspect of empathy. The big piece is like you have there's two different types. There's affective or emotional empathy, which is kind of more of that EQ, that kind of squishy people stuff. There's also cognitive empathy, which is a very rational and analytical approach to understanding somebody else's points of view and understanding the deeper reasoning behind their decisions. And this was basically what I got in my degree in at business school because it was all about like how to ask questions and how to understand other people and, and those types of things. So yeah, so big plug for Indy's book. But I think that then you start to do listening sessions, right? And two, for me, like I take an approach of start with yourself and kind of go outward from there. So practice self-empathy first. And when you are considering what else, you know, needs to change or things like that, like when you are brand new to this idea, this is why I teach the backend engineers that I work with. It's like, what would be useful to yourself? Like, mm, if you come back okay. from this project in six months or a year and you have no context, because you know yourself, right? You don't have to do any additional research to get inside your own head. And so just that pause, I think that's a big piece of it is practicing the pause of what 
is going to be useful? What does someone else need? Then once you've gotten comfortable with yourself, then kind of saying, okay, who are the people I work closest with every day, right? And you're developing that rapport. You're learning about how to do some of these listening sessions. This is stuff that I think product people, user experience people, like marketing people, like we do this all the time with like (laughs) we're constantly trying to understand people. And so there is that way of teaching because this is something that you have a strong skill set in this. And I think it's positioning it as a skill and then like working together. So I have some folks that I work with where I'll pair program with them and they teach me how to strengthen my coding skills. And then I work with them on how to infuse more empathy in their day-to-day work. And it's like we're both coaching each other. But recognizing that both skills are really important and treating them in parity. So it's like not hard technical skills are better than anything else. You need all of these different things. And the more that you can create kind of a whole team approach where everyone's working together and everyone has a seat at the table and everyone can teach each other and mentor each other and level each other's skills up, that's when all of it starts to kind of really take shape. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of parallels to just not only how the team is sort of working and interacting with each other, but then also how the team should be working and interacting with the customer. I think a lot of it, a lot about how the times when I've worked with engineers in particular who haven't spoken to a customer or been on a customer call. And then when you, you know, you finally get that team right in front of the person who's using their software and how much more how many more ideas and how much more engaged and how much better the team can be when they're all sort of getting that information together rather than having people be siloed. I'm hearing a lot of parallels with how you're talking about how the team can be more empathetic with each other as well. Yeah. And I think it's really interesting. I think this comes back to culture because I've talked to so many different developers who have said, we would love to talk to the customers, but we've been told (laughs) that we're not allowed to. I don't, just like now that I work in a company where it's commonplace, just even remembering what it was like to be in, and I've definitely been in those systems where you don't talk to the customer is just like mind blowing. Yeah. I think that's where leadership comes in. Absolutely. All right. Well, we are running out of time, but I have just one last question. You already mentioned one book, but I was curious if there's, and you also mentioned Brene Brown, but if there's any other books or podcasts that you're listening to that it's really getting you motivated and exciting that you want to recommend, I'd love to hear them. Yeah, I'm currently reading Brave New Work by Aaron Dignan, and I'm really enjoying it. It's about how to create a very responsive organization. And in the kind of first few chapters, I love the metaphor that he gives in that you have two different operating systems in terms of your culture and your business operations. And one set of basically cultural instructions is a traffic light where it's like, I'm going to have a policy for everything and everything's going to be very prescriptive. And then people just kind of like have to wait and stop. And that's the majority, at least in the United States, like we think that traffic lights are the norm because we see them everywhere. But then another operating system is a roundabout where it looks like chaos There's this one video on YouTube, I think, that I saw years ago where it's like five interconnected roundabouts like in Paris or something. And it looks like complete chaos. Like, how can this even work? Right. But if you structure your company as a roundabout where everyone has to pay attention to what everybody else is doing, you focus on trust, you focus on 
fluidity, you focus on good judgment, and then kind of the system will take care of itself. Again, it looks like chaos, but it can be a much superior model because roundabouts are cheaper to install and maintain. They work when the power is out. It ends up having much less fatalities. Like it's they're actually safer. Huh. But again, when you look at it, it's like that can't possibly work. And so yeah. the the Brave New Work book is about how to create a roundabout style organization where then you're kind of getting that. So I'm I'm really interested in like systems and and things like that. So that's one that uh that is kind of fun. And then I just finished reading Where the Crawdads Sing mm-hmm. by uh, Delia Owens. Oh my god, so good. So good. Yeah, the audiobook was really good. Read that. <laughs> this is good. These are two great recommendations. I think on the the first one, I we think a lot about a concept of that we call extreme ownership. And it sounds you're mm. I'm hearing a lot of parallels just in terms of how we try to push decisions down to people who are close to the customer and like run assist our company on trust. Because I agree the the more you can do that, the less like command and control you need and the more flexible people can be to make decisions. Yeah, absolutely. So this this book would probably be right up your alley then. Yeah. Well, Andrea, thank you so much for coming on the show. I loved this. I've learned so much. I'm so excited to go back to my team and talk about empathy and how we can work better together. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you.